Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. We are lucky today. With us is Charles Eisenstein. I have been watching him and following him for some time right now. Uh, he doesn't know that. He doesn't know me. But, but it's, he's, he's a tremendous thinker and a great writer and a thoughtful, philosophical, practical guy with some thinking that is incredibly reasonable and, and life-changing and... Uh, I'm worried I'm overselling him here, but I'm not because it's, you know, I've, I've read his work and it's powerful stuff. Um, the book that we're going to be talking about is uh, his most recent book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. I first discovered him when a close friend of mine really um, wanted me to read Sacred Economics. And, and uh, I think he knew I had money issues. Um, he's written The Ascent of Humanity. He's... Um, He's uh, like me, I'll say, in that he is thoughtful and has great ideas and also recognizes the challenges of living day to day, the, the ideas that he is committed to and that the challenges we have of you know, closing that gap and recognizing that we come from a certain mentality and thought process and at the same time, uh, you know, kind of stretch and, and uh, aspire to to more. So, Charles, I, I can't say without further ado, because that's a lot of ado. Um, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks. Thank you, Peter. Yeah, actually, my most recent book isn't The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know is Possible. I wrote one that came out last year called Climate, A New Story. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Okay, yeah. well, I'll have to pick that up. Well, thanks for, for coming on. And and I have, you know, as I said to you in the at the beginning, you know, I've it's a 30-minute podcast, but I've got you know, two and a half to three hours of questions. So I'm going to just jump right in. Hmm. Um, what is the bubble you grew up in and how did it get shattered for you? The bubble. Uh, you know, we had we had a formula that was implicitly given to us of, of how to live life, where you get good grades in school and you are responsible and you get into a good university and you build up your resume and you launch on a professional career and you eventually get married, you have investments, you have your house, et cetera, et cetera. There was a whole life trajectory that was pretty much guaranteed to work. At least that's how it was presented to us. And it was part of a world that was moving forward into a better and better future. And if, and if, you know, if you got sick, you would go to the doctor and the doctor would fix you. And it was more and more likely that he would fix you because medical technology is advancing too. And, you know, it's onward and upward. And that that bubble, so it had both a uh, collective incarnation and a personal incarnation. Here's how to live life. Mm -hmm. And already by, I mean, maybe in my parents' generation, it kind of worked. But by the time I came of age, that... Uh, ideology about life and the world was wearing thin. And since then, it has 
the, the, the disintegration of that world story has accelerated. So for me, I was never fully happy with that bubble. Like I always had this sneaking suspicion that things are not as I've been told, which was augmented by readings I did as a teenager in, in radical politics. Um, and then because I couldn't really, like I didn't have a, a cogent rebuttal to the story of the world that I was all being offered, but I couldn't make myself go along with it either. And I, I was, I would procrastinate. I would, I just wasn't motivated mm -hmm. to really take life by the horns and be ambitious, you know, and go to graduate school and just, I just couldn't make myself do it. And instead I went to Taiwan as soon as I graduated from school. Mm -hmm. um, I went there first when I was 19, actually, even before I graduated. And um, there, that was another of, of a series of experiences that um, confirmed my sneaking suspicion that there was a lot more to life and reality than I'd been told. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's, yeah, that's how it happened for me. And, and it, and it brought you to, and this is the sort of central focus of the book, these two stories, the story of separation and the story of interbeing, right? right. And could you describe briefly, cause I want to go into it in a lot more detail, but what are these two stories of life, the story of separation and the story of interbeing? Yeah, so maybe I'll say how I got to those. Mm -hmm. I became aware of a deep wrongness in the world that I won't try to establish in our conversation right now, but whether it was objectively true or just my own psychology, I was like, there's something fundamentally wrong with civilization. Otherwise, we should be in utopia by now. You know, it's been long enough for us to engineer all of our social problems out of existence. And we were supposed to have cured all disease by now. That was the prediction in the 50s. We were supposed to have flying cars and robot servants and a perfect society. Come on. Like, how long is this promise going to be delayed? Something's wrong here. And as I became aware of the, the oppression, the suffering, the starvation, uh, the ecocide, like all of these problems. It's sort of the Buddha's walk outside the palace. Yeah, right. So I was like, what's the origin of, what, what's the real reason why all this is happening? And I went through various candidates for the reason, you know, capitalism, you know, or greed <laughs> or whatever. And what I came to was the basic mythology of our civilization, which is what I call the story of separation, that answers fundamental questions in a certain way. The questions being, who am I? Why are we here? What's real? What's important? Like the most basic questions humans can ask. And the way it answered it was, who you are is a separate self in a world of other that is not a self. This world outside of ourselves is just a bunch of stuff governed by, by mathematical forces. And therefore, that our well-being in that story comes through dominating those natural forces and outcompeting the other separate selves who populate this objective universe. So built into that story of self is the entire program of technological domination of the world, the separation from nature, the money system that we have today that generates 
disintegration of community, like the whole shebang comes down to a, a basic narrative or story or myth of the separate self. And my thesis then became that this, this journey of separation is generating endless crises that, that together form a birth crisis that is propelling us into a new story, a story of reunion, a story of non-separation, a story of interdependency, interconnection, interbeing, where we recognize we're not separate selves, that what happens to any being in the world in some levels happening to us, that what I do to the world, I do to myself, that who I am is a set of relationships and not a Cartesian mote of consciousness inside of a flesh robot, but that I am connection. I am the world. There's an intimate relationship between the inner and the outer. What we do to nature is going to happen to us too. Even if we, if we, if we destroy other species in the Amazon and the Congo and the wetlands and so forth, even if we don't die ourselves, something in us dies. We become poorer. We cannot be secure if there are people in the world who are insecure. We can't build a big enough fortress wall to keep out the violence that, that we might perpetrate in the world. It'll sneak under the fortress wall and come up as domestic violence. So that's, that's, that's the story of interbeing. And then I ask, how does that apply to systems? How does that apply? I mean, you can apply it to anything, to medicine, to agriculture, to leadership, to politics. It's a, it's a different world story. You've expressed it off really beautifully. And, and I love, um, there's a number of things I want to go into around this. One is I love um, how you own the challenge of adopting the narrative of interbeing, like how you admit to not being there yet. And, and, and I alluded to this in the intro that it's, it's such a hard part of the transition process to say, okay, I live in this paradigm of separation. And the truth is, and I'm talking about myself now, I'm pretty good at it. Like I've written a bunch of books. I've, I've won awards. You know, I'm like ranked the number one executive coach in the world, the top 30 thought leader. I'm in the top global gurus list, like all this stuff. I'm good at separation, right? Like, like I, I, I've been financially successful. I've been successful in my work. I coach really successful people. So, and I see the truth of what you're describing. I see the 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 loneliness of separation, the impossibility of living as an island. I see the uh, um, the truth that anything that I do impact everything else. That we cannot be secure if there are other people who are not secure. Like not just from a a, a, a graciousness perspective, from a reality perspective. Like yeah. revolution <clears throat> happens and the walls aren't big enough, right? And so, like I see all of that, and yet. So here's where I'm asking your help and, and I'm recognizing that you're also somewhere in between these two things. Like how, how do we, how do I, I'll make it very personal. How do I move along this path from very successful separation to more than an appreciation of the interconnectedness of things, but really living life in, in like, not just being convinced of it intellectually, but knowing it 
and 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 living in that way where uh, where I'm yes. I'm part of the narrative of interview. Yes, the first step is to give attention to your yearning to do that, and to bring into consciousness things that may have been excluded from the table of your awareness, such as the dissatisfaction with the success arc that maybe has taken you, taken you to a certain place and then hit a glass ceiling and you realize there's some other level of well-being and happiness that I'm not getting any closer to. It's like when you build a tower to heaven, no matter how high you build, you're not actually ever any closer to the sky. But you've built a big, big tower. And from the mindset of success, it's like, well, maybe I needed to build it twice as high. And then I will be closer to the, this elusive happiness. Right. It's like trying to run to the horizon. No matter how fast you run, you're still just as far from the horizon as you've ever been. So what do you do? Run twice as fast. But then comes a moment where maybe you get tired of building the tower, tired of running to the horizon, and you stop and you realize that the sky actually begins an inch off the ground and that you are already where you've been wanting to go. Hmm. If you become aware of the things that have been, been obscured from the chase, by the chase. This, you know, I was one time I was on, uh, this is like one of my only times ever on, you know, real television. I was in, as you know, it's happened like maybe three or four times, but I was in uh, South Africa and they, for some reason, I got onto like their business show on the national television. And, you know, the guy, the host, very gracious man was talking about, you know, South Africa's economic growth, you know, and increasing wealth. And I'm, I'm like, what I've seen here isn't wealth, even the so-called wealthy people, because your houses are surrounded by, you know, razor wire and surveillance cameras and armed response placards and stuff like that. Like, that's not wealth. Wealth is that you feel at home. Wealth is that you feel secure. Wealth is that you can go outside and and you belong. That's wealth. And if you don't have that, then the kind of security that comes from money and power, that's maybe the best substitute for that kind of belonging, for that kind of comfort, for that feeling of home. But no amount of it will ever be enough. So I think like as an executive coach, you know, this kind of work you're talking about, I've, I've had a little interaction with the coaching world. And you know, I've been to a couple, one or, one or two conferences, you know, and there's a presentation after presentation and they're documenting their results, you know, and the average <laughs> salary went up by 100 percent. And this and I'm like, what about the result where the, where after the coaching is complete, he retires or resigns from his job and he travels the world playing the guitar and his income drops by 98 percent. But he's experiencing a joy and a self-discovery like, does, how does that fit into your statistics? Is that a success? In the story of separation, it's invisible, that kind of success. But there is a yearning in, in everybody that is visible from the story of interbeing that says you're not actually here to win because you're going to die someday. And the only thing that you can take with you, the only thing that outlives you is what you've put into the world. Not your money, not your status, not your possessions. 
So your reincarnation, and this is, uh, I don't know, like, I know this is probably way too esoteric for the show, but whatever, you know, you can look at it many ways, but your reincarnation is built on your legacy, on the imprint you've made into the world. And we, on some level, no matter how successful you are, you're not going to be satisfied with, with power and money because that's not why we're here. In the old story, you're here to survive and reproduce and maximize. In the new story, you're here as a giver to participate in something bigger than yourself. So a couple of things. Does that become one more or is there a danger that that becomes one more element of separation? Like, okay, so now I want to be reincarnated. So I want to, you know, so now I've got to really give and I've got to like give in a way that, you know, and, and we're operating in the world of interconnectedness as a separate person. Yeah. I mean, you know, I was, I was offering that more um, poetically than as like, okay, you better do this or you're going to be, have a bad next incarnation. It's more of, more of understanding that every choice that we make is a declaration of who we want to become and what world we want to live in. Right, right. So, so, so let me share some fears. So here's yep. the fear. I, I'm going to act this way and I'm going to take down my walls and do my best to create a world in which we're all at home. But other people aren't going to do that. And as soon as I take down my walls, I become less secure. But the world hasn't gotten there yet. So I'm not more secure. So my walls are the best thing to sort of protect me and keep me safe in a world that, you know, isn't that does that is still acting in the narrative of separation and unless the whole world acts now of course i understand the conundrum right unless i act that way the whole world's not going to act that way but if i act that way before everybody else does then i'm suddenly vulnerable and you know especially as the child of a survivor of the holocaust like that taps into lots of fears that i have and and how do you make that first move yeah so it's not about dropping all of the walls right away. It's an orientation. So the, what I said before, you give attention to the yearning to live in that world and to, to, to be somebody who is aligned with that world. And so there's a yearning there. And as we give attention to that yearning and feel the truth of it, we become attuned to opportunities to take the next step mm -hmm. toward that. And so that that next step, usually it's not some heroic abandonment of all security. Probably it's going to be something that's just at the edge of courage. Not beyond it, but just at the edge. And, you, and it feels like the natural step. It feels like like you're standing on the high dive. Mm -hmm. And there's that moment where you're like, yeah, I'm ready to do this, which is different from the moment where all of your so-called friends are egging you on to take a dive off the cliff that you know isn't safe. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about this feeling of readiness that grows as we give attention and, and have validated from the outside who we really are. And, and as more people do this, it creates an invitation for other people to do this. Because mm -hmm. the more people who do it, the safer it is to do it. Right. Um, what's your advice for business leaders, people who are 
you know, responsible for organizations that, that, you know, one of the challenges I think as I, as I'm, as I'm, as I'm yearning to, um, the, to approximate and move towards this, the narrative of interbeing is that I still think in units. So the basic unit is myself. Like all I care about is myself. So I expand that unit and I care about my wife and my children and I care about my parents and my brothers and their families and I care about my wife's families and like, and then we can have a unit of small community and then we can have a unit of, of um, larger community and, and maybe, but we're still, you know, and, and, and organizations and leaders often really are thinking and held accountable for the unit of their organization. But they're still separate units. You know, they look right. out at competitors. I mean, one of the things I've tried to do is to say to, to leaders of organizations all in the same industry, let's get together and, and even though we're competitors, collaborate. And the answer that I often get is, well, I'd love to participate in that as long as I'm the only one for my industry because I can't speak openly if I'm speaking in front of my competitors. And, and that's that unit then. And so I'm just curious what advice you have for leaders uh, in organizations and businesses that um, may be struggling with the same challenge. Everybody struggles with this challenge in our current society. There's no shortcut to get out of it. Mm -hmm. It's not only among organizations that are competing with each other, but within organizations too. Right. People are right. competing each, with each other for promotions or for- 100%. Yeah. And the whole economy is set up to mandate competition because of the way the money system works. There's always more debt than there is money because of the way money is created. Not that there wouldn't be competition without our current money system, but it wouldn't be organically mandated, necessary. So in a way, you're, no matter whether it's among organizations or within an organization or, or in any situation, you're kind of going against the tide of the system and the story that we live in, in order to, if you want to cooperate, if you want to trust. Like, why should you trust anybody when everybody's out to get the best deal? Right. Yeah. And, and I don't have a shortcut solution to that, except, again, to look at what might be the, the, the next step of trust that doesn't feel reckless, but it feels daring. That's the feeling to look for is the feeling of daring, but not reckless. Mm hmm. And we do see in extraordinary circumstances, like the COVID at 19 situation, we do see people cooperating. We're seeing both, actually. And we're seeing like, you know, profiteering and hoarding. But we're also seeing um, cooperation mm -hmm. that that is coming out of the woodwork um, that speaks to this latent yearning to live and relate in a different way. Because when, when, when the structures of normal disintegrate, what comes out? It's this suppressed aspect of human nature that, that wants to collaborate and cooperate and take care of each other. It's bursting to happen. 
but we live in structures that don't really let it happen. Because if you act on that in the corporate world, you could get eaten alive. Mm -hmm. So as we are experiencing this other dimension of human nature coming out uh, through the cracks in the structures, in the future, as we you know go back to normal, maybe, or maybe a new normal, we can ask, hmm, maybe we don't want to go back to normal. Maybe we would like to get together to create new structures, new agreements that don't cast us into artificial, unnecessary competition. Maybe we can get together and change the rules of the game mm -hmm. so that competition still operates in a healthy realm. But maybe there's a realm that has been given over to competition that we could reclaim for mutual care and solidarity. That's the opportunity that's being offered to us. It's an initiatory moment that that brings things into the realm of choice that had been, you know, just part of reality and unchangeable. Um, talk to us about morphic resonance. I love the idea. Yeah, morphic resonance is is a um, alternative theory of change, basically, uh, in contrast to the story of separations theory of change, which is based on force that says that the more force you exert on the world, the more power you have. So the powerful in this world are those who have a lot of force under their command. For example, the chairman of a large corporation, a politician, a general, somebody who can make lots of people do things. That's a, a powerful person, someone with a big platform. You know, you or I might be considered maybe not as powerful as some, but you know, powerful because we could persuade lots of people to do things. Mm -hmm. Morphic resonance says, because self and world are not fundamentally separate, that any change that happens in yourself, in your relationships, in your realm is part of a larger change. Morphic resonance or morphogenesis says that any change that happens in one place creates a field of change so that the same change begins happening elsewhere. No matter how quiet or subtle right. or, or private that change right. is. Right. So you could make you know, some kind of change in your organization to a different decision-making process or a different you know, non-hierarchical, like some kind of innovation. And maybe it spreads because someone else finds out about it and they go tell somebody and wow, what a great idea. And it spreads in a, in a way that we, the rational mind can understand. But it could be that as you're doing this, someone across the world is doing the same, pretty much the same idea because it's like it's an idea whose time has come. And by doing it, it's like you've kind of crystallized this, this change in the world. And you can't say that you caused it to happen. But there's sometimes the feeling that by making this change in my life or in my organization, I am declaring what world it is that we live in. So no wonder it's happening everywhere else. When we embrace that principle of change, we realize that there's no person on earth who's more powerful than any other person, that all of our choices are significant. And for me, it's like, it's a relief, you know, like this conversation that we're having, it doesn't have to go viral. Uh, even if one person listens and it's the right person, 
on a 500 year time scale, that might have more impact on the world than if it makes a big splash, a big wave, 100,000 people listen to it, and then, then it's the next episode and the next episode. Like, how do, do we really know how this world works? Sometimes the biggest changes hinge on a tiny coincidence. You know, it reminds me of the story of Emily Dickinson, the, mm. the poet, where, you know, she was part of this well-known family and she wanted to sort of be a writer and, and, and you know, she was making moves that her family is saying, like, you're going to destroy the family name. Like, we have an important name, we're going to destroy the family name. So she ended up writing, I don't know, 2,000 poems and, and, and you know, they were later found in a, in, you know, in a trunk somewhere. And, you know, like nobody know, nobody would know the Emily Dickinson name without Emily Dickinson, the poet who was going to destroy the Emily Dickinson name. So it's like, in you know, in the in the hundred year view, uh, you know, to your point. But I guess my question is, what if that trunk was never discovered? What if she wrote all of those poems and they never impacted anybody? It was just her quietly writing those poems and putting them in a trunk. Would she have still had an impact on changing the world? Yeah, um, I would say yes, because we do not really understand causality. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have had experiences that seem to violate causality as the Newtonian story has described it. Uh, synchronicities in life. I don't know if you've experienced this, but, but they especially happen at moments where you've let go of being in control of things, maybe you you know move to a new city with no plan, like that, or you're you're traveling you know without having booked everything in advance, and in that space of open receptivity, the strangest things happen, and you get a sense there's a a what David Bohm called an implicate order, uh, another intelligence underlying the way we think the world works, and you know. You can explain them away um, in various ways, but sometimes it just feels like, whoa, that couldn't have happened like that. That that has to mean something, you know. This this feeling of a of a purpose or an order or an intelligence underlying our own. What? How powerful would you be if you were able to ride those synchronicities, if you had mastered the technology of being at just the right place at just the right time, meeting just the right person, those people who are really successful in the world, is that because they are so organized and um, so together? Or is it maybe sometimes because they were in the right place at the right time, playing out a story that was written in advance? And sometimes stuff just works by magic. And I'm not discounting all of our learned skills and and things like that. But I often get the sense that there's something else at play here. And also, you're, you're, um, even as I listen to you, I could, I could see myself think like, oh, so to be successful in the world, you need to follow those synchronistic moments and what we're saying in this conversation is it's not about being successful in the world right yeah what does success mean right you know, success in 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 some of the uh, esoteric traditions the, like the greatest zen masters or whatever were not the ones who had lots of followers they might be the one who's, who only had one follower right and maybe that one had one follower and that one had one and that one had a hundred thousand 
So was it the one who had 100,000 that was responsible for this big change? Or was it someone back in that lineage? You know, and what's like, I often think about what, what is going to be my impact on the world? The biggest impact, is it going to be because of my books? Or is it going to be maybe because of a special moment I had with one of my sons that gets, that he takes in and it changes who he's going to be as a father? And three generations down the road, maybe there's a great leader who comes out and everyone says, wow, thanks to that great leader, the world has changed for the better. But maybe the real reason was that moment where I chose to skip uh, a fancy podcast so that I could be with my son. That's just another example. Do we really know how this world works? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's uh, so. So let me ask you a question here around that. Um, here's a quote. Uh, one of your quotes. I'm saying that there is a time to do and a time not to do, and that when we are a slave to the habit of doing, we are unable to distinguish between them. As I mentioned earlier, the time to do is when you know what to do. When we don't know what to do and act anyway, you're probably acting out of habit. Now, I'm feeling this especially in this moment when I'm seeing all these people around COVID-19 and they're pivoting and they're going digital and they're doing this and that. And I do not have an impulse to act. Like I do not know what to do in this moment particularly. I don't have some brilliant idea. I don't. In fact, I actually have an impulse to stop doing and to, um, to, to slow down. And, and, and yet I feel my habituated response to life as a doer. I, I don't generally stop. I'm constantly doing things. And so part of my question to you then is, how do I stop? It sounds so stupid because, you know, you stop by just stopping. But but it's it's not always that simple, and there's you know it's it's kind of and 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 you know maybe you can answer this question at the same time, which is you talk about the scarcity of money and time being artificial, but how do we combat our feelings of scarcity in order to live our lives with that sense of yeah, abundance? it's not about combating. Combating is one of the these impulse? habits, these reaction templates that our society and many of us individually are, are trapped in. Mm-hmm. The quote that you read, another way to put it is that when our habituated, our habitual reaction patterns are themselves part of the problem, it is a necessary step to stop doing so that, so that we can dehabituate from those reaction patterns and do something that isn't contributing to the problem. So, and, and and the deepest reaction pattern in civilization and the most problematic one is the pattern right. of got a problem, find the enemy and dominate it, whatever that is. Our, our, you know, the problem is our election, our democracy isn't working very well. <sighs> Must be Vladimir Putin. Like find the problem. And now we know what to do. People are getting sick. Find a virus. Now, I'm not saying that that the COVID virus is not related to the to the sickness, but it's it's interesting that that there's such a tr- tremendous mobilization to do something about coronavirus because we know what to do. Like we're there's a comfort level in identifying an enemy. 
ha, okay, now we can control something. Some enormous number of people are clinically depressed, like 10 or 20%. Um, uh, obesity, addiction, uh, depression, I mentioned suicide. Like these things are all steeply on the rise, but there's no, there's no like, oh my God, we've got to change our entire way of life to do something about this. Why? Because there's not an easy enemy to identify here. So this is a, a pattern of response that can achieve certain results. Like through technologies of control, like you can save the life of somebody who's had a severe car accident. You know, you, you put them in the ICU, you can, like, you can control their organs. Like control works for some things, but there's a glass ceiling. And we're realizing collectively now the, the, where this regime of control is taking right. us to a world of isolation, of distancing, of fear, of, you know, like, is this really where we want to go? So this, this question itself might defy the whole premise that you're leading from. But so what do we do? Like, let's say we can see this, right? And we can, and, and I agree with you and it's easier to attack an enemy and it's, and, and, you know, things that we can control are seductive because we, we can do something about them. We can control. And here you have this view of the world. That's incredibly compelling that says we are all interconnected that, um, that everything, you know, in fact, I feel one of the things I wrote this morning is when I woke up and I was thinking about this interview is I feel like you, Charles, are one part of me saying things that a part of me says that like there's even that interconnectedness that I yeah. that I I see this world really, really clearly. And I and I also see and hold on to the world of separation. And 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 what you've said a number of times is is go to the edge and trust the next step that you can trust. And, you know, don't push yourself past that step, but go to that step. And, and I wonder, as a world, as a society, how do we not get overwhelmed with, you know, the 5 million dying people of hunger and the, you know, how do we not get overwhelmed with that? When new information comes in, then who we are as a chooser changes. How, so maybe one question is, if we want people to start making different choices in the world, including ourselves, how do we change the conditions from which the choice arises? And that gets us into how do we heal the trauma that dictates so many of our choices? Um, how do we bring invisible truths into visibility through the power of our word, through the power of our agreements, through the power of our stories? How do we invoke and summon lost parts of ourselves that if they were brought into integration, we would make different choices. So this is this speaks to a different kind of power that I'm sure in the leadership world that you're in um, has been, I'm sure that there's recognition of this, like to name the gift, for example. To name somebody, to name something in another person that calls it into being through naming it. Mm -hmm. To say, I know what you're capable of. And maybe until that moment, they weren't capable of it. But if you can actually see it and know it, then you're speaking something into 
realization that had been latent before. So there's many other kinds of power. And it comes through, ultimately, for me, it's right. um, well, maybe two things. One of them is, is the power of the truth made visible, which comes from, I mean, there's many ways to make hidden truths visible, um, but one way is to name them. And, and, you know, for that to work, you have to actually see them. And to actually see them, you have to look for them. And right. to look for them, you have to know that they exist. And that's something that we can uh, do for each other. We can say, yeah, you know, I saw this. And that reminds you that it exists. And, and then you start looking for it, too. So this is a different kind of change. And it's not a substitute for then eventually taking action. Like I said in that quote, it's not that I'm advocating never doing anything, but it's to change the ground from which our doing arises so that we're not trapped in old patterns. Yeah, you have this other quote um, that I'm gonna to read to you, uh, which, is, which just resonates with what you've just said. You don't have to do anything. Why? Not because nothing needs to be done, it's that you don't have to do, you don't have to do because you will do. The unstoppable compulsion to act in bigger and wiser ways than you knew possible has already been set in motion. I'm urging you to trust in that. You needn't contrive to motivate yourself, guilt yourself, or goad yourself into action. Actions taken from that place will be less powerful than the ones that arise mm -hmm. unbidden. Trust yourself that you will know what to do and that you will know when to do it. What is the well, risk that we need to be not able even to a risk, tolerate it's a in order to move in this That direction. something will be lost in order to move into a new story and into the, the evolved self that is part of that story, something of the old will have to be sacrificed. We're going to have to let go of something. It's a different thing for each person. Uh, it could be some level of perceived financial security. Uh, or some level of control in life. Uh, it could be a um, hidden agenda that you've been carrying. You know, this comes up for me as a, you know, sort of semi-public figure, you know, as, as like, if necessary, am I willing to sacrifice people's good opinion of me if that is what serves change? Or maybe if you're conflict-averse, like that's another thing I have, like, you know, I'm conflict averse, I try to please everybody, like, am I willing to sacrifice that if that's part of stepping into my next version of myself? So there's always, uh, always a guardian at the threshold of evolution that needs to be placated by with a gift, with a sacrifice, you know, by letting go of something of who I have been. And I think that that it, this does not have to be like you're ripping away something that's so precious to you. It could be something that feels kind of old, feels kind of heavy, you know, that you feel like you're kind of done with it. And maybe it's still kind of precious, you know, and maybe it even needs to be thanked and grieved as you let go of it. Because, I mean, all of our bad habits uh, and, you know, psychological pathologies and, you know, all of these control patterns and so forth, these, these were developed for a good reason. They were, I mean, once upon a time, we were little, 
little babies. We were little Swedens that that responded to a very far from ideal world as best we could. And at some point, what had been protective and necessary holds us back. And the time for healing has come. When the, the underlying wound or trauma that generates the protective controlling behavior is healed, then the letting go becomes a lot natural, more natural. And I mean, this is, you know, this is, there's no trivial thing here. It's not like anything in this conversation is going to solve your problem. And now all of a sudden you're going to walk out of it, you know, full of courage or something. But uh, I'm, you know, I'm just pointing to some, some things that are, that I think are true, that when they come into awareness, things start to change. A, a, a new truth works on you. As you take it in, it changes you. You become a different doer. That's how it is for me anyway. We've been talking with Charles Eisenstein, his book, The More Beautiful World Our Hearts Know Is Possible, uh, is not his latest book, that's on climate, but it is a really wonderful book that I really highly um, suggest you explore. Uh, Charles, it is such a pleasure to speak with you about this and and life-changing and uh, yeah, thank you, Peter. I'm, I'm just appreciative of your time and your thoughtful presence on the podcast. Thank you for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, Check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.